through the book of Matthew. And because we've been walking our way through the book of Matthew, we have also, as we hit Matthew chapter 5, 6, and 7, we've been walking through recently the Sermon on the Mount. Uh, I don't know if you know anything about the Sermon on the Mount. You've maybe heard that term before. Uh, it's right there in Matthew's five, chapters 5 through 7. But it's basically the magnum opus, the, the masterpiece of Jesus' teaching in the Bible. This is really powerful, important stuff. And so it's been really fun for us as a community to dig into, to study, to let the Word of God speak to us in the Sermon on the Mount. And um, in, in the last couple of weeks, so last week, this week, and next week, we're specifically focusing in on Matthew chapter 6. You're welcome to turn there. You have it. Matthew chapter 6, verse 5 through 15. Matthew 6, verses 5 through 15. It's a very familiar passage. We just sang it. It's this thing called the Lord's Prayer, and it's really important. Because this is where Jesus definitively, powerfully teaches on how we are to pray, what we are to pray, why we are to pray. Because prayer is a big deal. Prayer is a huge part of the life of anyone who would follow Jesus um, and, and know the Father. So let's read those, those verses very quickly this morning. Chapter 6, verse 5. This is Jesus speaking. And when you pray, you must not be like the hypocrites, for they love to stand and pray in the synagogues and on the street corners, that they may be seen by others. Truly I say to you, they have received their reward. But when you pray, go into your room and shut the door and pray to your Father who is in secret, and your Father who sees in secret will reward you. And when you pray, do not heap up empty phrases as the Gentiles do, for they think that they will be heard for their many words. Do not be like them, for your Father knows what you need before you ask him. Pray then like this, our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name, your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our debts as we also forgive our debtors. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For if you forgive others their trespasses, your heavenly Father will also forgive you. But if you do not forgive others their trespasses, neither will your Father forgive your trespasses. This is probably a really familiar prayer to you. If you have, if you have been to the church much in your life, some of you may have not, some of you may have just started going to church, that's exciting. And this may be some of the first time you're hearing the Lord's Prayer. But the Lord's Prayer is, according to Martin Luther, who's one of the great sort of... Uh, thank you. Little, little shout out to Austin. We have a Lutheran in the uh, former Lutheran in the house with us tonight, uh, today. And uh, Martin Luther said that the Lord's Prayer is the greatest martyr in the church. And the reason he said that is because it's been butchered so much. And it's been misunderstood so much. So hopefully today... I'm not thinking we'll get perfect clarity. Okay, let's go. But hopefully today, you'll get a little bit better picture of what's really going on in the Lord's Prayer and why it is so important in the life of Christians, in your prayer life, even. So we start with, hallowed be your name. I'm guessing if you're like me, many of you here are not even sure what that means. So let me dive into it with an analogy. We honor something when we distinguish it and when we set it apart 
and when we protect it, and when we draw it near. Let me give you some examples. You have a safe in your house? No, I'm, I'm sure in college you probably don't have a safe. You might have a safe in your house. But what do you generally tend to put in a safe? Social security card. Yes. <laughs> Passports. Money. Jewelry, perhaps. Guns. A lot of people put guns in a safe. But the reason we do this is because we have distinguished certain items in our life. We've distinguished certain items and we've said, these certain things are more important than the others. And so I want to I put them to the side. I want to put them separate from the rest. We do this with um, our dishes. I don't, when, when y'all get married, you, this will probably happen to you too. You, you buy these really expensive dishes you never use. It's just totally bizarre to me as a man that we, we I mean, people spend thousands of dollars buying this fine china and it sits up in a shelf, a high shelf, and never gets used. But nonetheless, we set it apart. That's the point. We put it somewhere where it will stay protected, where young hands cannot get in there and start smashing it and breaking it because it's special. It's something that we, we want to protect. It's something that we want to have for people that come to the house that are special. Now, another thing is a museum. Does anybody here like museums? Be honest. Be honest. It's okay. I do. I know. I do. <laughs> museums are where we collectively, as a society, set aside certain things that are really important and they're really valuable, and they're really amazing. And then we stick them in glass cases. We put special lights on them and special temperature gauges inside, and we put special humidity sensors so that that, that piece of, of fine jewelry or that painting so it will not get messed up. We set it apart from the rest of paintings. How many of you have done paintings before? Are they in a museum? No. I'm sorry. No. Maybe someday. And lastly, for this concept of hallowed, let's use Pokemon cards. Okay, everybody got a Pokemon card with you? Okay. So, so look at your HP up in the top corner. Does anybody have above 100 HP in the top corner? Exactly, because you got the stinky Pokemon cards. Okay, you have low HP, which means you have low hit power, which means you're going to die in battle. Okay, I'm just going to be honest with you. Those Pokemon cards are like the unwashed masses. Our kids have hundreds of them, and they just don't mean much. Okay, but but if you watch Andrew, he does this a lot. He gets his he gets his iPad. He gets on YouTube, and I'm not. This is a thing on YouTube. Okay, he watches people, other people, open up Pokemon packs. That's what that's like, and he does. He can do that for hours. We don't let him, but he could do it for hours. And in each Pokemon pack, you get to a certain point where you know you get towards the end of the pack, and there's there's usually a, some type of good card in the pack. Yeah, always. always? Is there always? <laughs> and these are like some of the ones you might find in the back of the pack. Oh. I know, I know. So notice how they're in protective sleeves. These are protective sleeves. These are Megas and EXs. Look at how much better they are than your cards. <laughs> Look at that. They're gorgeous. <coughs> these things are valuable. These go for, literally, some of these go for tens, fifty dollars on eBay. Uh, I'm going to sell them. We're going to sell these soon. No. 
Those are megas in the exits. And here's what the here's what the boys have done. Here's what Andrew's done. He separates them out. So there's unwashed masses cards. He separates these cards out. He protects them. Should I put the sleeve on them? And then he holds on to them almost all day. He keeps them really close to himself. He literally clutches them in his hand. He actually will take them to bed and fall asleep with them clutched in his hand next to his heart. <laughs> he loves <laughs> these Pokemon cards. What Andrew's doing is he's Halloween his Pokemon, these particular Pokemon cards. He's hallowing them. The word hallow comes from, uh, it's, a, it's an archaic English word, and it comes from the Greek word hagiazo. So this Greek word hagiazo, it means to make holy. So when we say hallow would be the name of God, we mean to make holy. What does it mean to make holy? It means to set apart. It means to protect and it needs to hold near. That's what it means to hallow something. And we do it with things other than God all the time. We do it without even realizing. We hallow our cars. We hallow money. We hallow our school. We hallow ourselves. And the reality is, Jesus is teaching us. He's saying, the most important thing to hallow, even though you're going to catch yourself, you're really honest with yourself, you're going to catch yourself hallowing all kinds of stuff. You, 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 can, you can hallow your personality. You can hallow your looks. You can hallow your children. You can hallow your parents. You can hallow your family. You can hallow your home. There's all kinds of things that we do this with. But Jesus is saying, pray, pray with all of your might that you would hallow the most important thing in the world, and that is that The name of God, it's hard for us to understand this because we live in modern America. If you lived in biblical times or if you lived in Old Testament times, you would understand that names were exceptionally important. That a name actually conferred value. Now we just, it's like Bob, Bill, Jim, Sandy. And they still mean a little bit, right? I mean, names, don't get me wrong. Names still mean something. I, I was watching a particular episode this past week of a show called Blackish. And uh, I don't know if you saw this episode. But uh, they were, it, was, it was all about this new baby that was being born into the main family of the show. And this new baby, they didn't know what sex the baby was. So they had one of these gender reveal parties. And apparently this is a big thing. Like this is like a, the new thing, to have a gender reveal party. Um, and they had this big balloon they popped. And they didn't know if it was going to shower out pink confetti or blue confetti, but ended up showering out blue confetti. And the husband and wife in this main family had made a deal. They made a deal that if it was a girl, if it was a girl, they, that, that the wife could name the baby. And if it was a boy, the husband, he got to name the baby. Well, yeah, exactly. <laughs> so that's the plot of the rest of the show, right, is the argumentation that happened. They pull out baby name books. But he, the wife is very upset for most of the show because he decides that unlike their other kids, this is, again, this is a show called Blackish. Okay, so it's about a sort of uh, upper middle class of African American family, and he says, "I want to name our kid this new baby Devante," and the wife's like, "Oh my goodness, no, you're not doing that. You can't name it Devante." The rest of the kids' names are like Sally and, and John, and he's like, "He's like, you're not naming our kid Devante." He's like, "Why? That's our roots. That's real. Let's give him something real." And here's her point: 
she comes back to him and says, listen, I don't want you to name him that because throughout his life, he's going to start out devalued. Because in our society, in this day and age, if you name your kid Devante, automatically people know his race. And automatically people know what place to put him in in their lives. It was, it was a cool commentary on sort of some of that, sort of the, the, the racism that we still deal with, that, that this country still deals with. I'm not talking about you specifically. I'm just saying the country still deals with. Um, but the point was, she was saying, names have value. What we do, this kid's name is going to matter for his life. It, it, can, it can put him in a whole different category of people just based upon his name. Okay, well, that, that idea is a thousand times more powerful truth than the name of God. The, the name of God is, is his essence. The name of God is his character. The name of God is his being. There's no distinction like we make. We, we have to earn a good name, don't we? We have to do certain things for someone to go, oh, you have a good name. Or that, that guy's a good guy. Not so for God. When he says to Abraham, I am that I am, he's saying, I transcend earning my names. I simply am. And here are some of the names. I thought we'd just look very, very quickly at some of the names of God from the Old Testament. They're powerful. For example, Elohim, the creator God. El Elyon, possessor of heaven and earth. Jehovah Jireh, the Lord will provide. Jehovah Nissi, the Lord our banner. Jehovah Rapha, the Lord that healeth. Jehovah Shalom, the Lord our peace. Jehovah Rach, the Lord our shepherd. Jehovah Sikenu, the Lord our righteousness. Jehovah Sayaba, the Lord of hosts. Jehovah Shammah, the Lord is present and near. Jehovah Makodeshikim. I expect you to know that when you read those names this morning. Jehovah Mashodekim, which means the Lord sanctifieth you. All these names speak of God's attributes. They are who He is. He doesn't have to earn them. He is them. He acts in accordance with them. Now Jesus Christ provides the ultimate example of God's name. His very name, Jesus Christ, means Lord, Savior, King. And then when Jesus was on earth, when he was teaching, when he was speaking, he drew all kinds of other names to himself. The way, the truth, and the life, the living water, the good shepherd, the branch, the bright morning star, the lamb of God, the truth, the life, the living water, the bread of life. And it goes on. There's an Old Testament passage also in Isaiah that calls him the wonderful counselor, the mighty God, the prince of The name of God is a big deal. The names of God are a big deal. They are meant to be the one thing, the ultimate thing, that in our life we have. That we set apart, that we protect. We protect with all of our heart the names of God. And then we hold them near. We hold them near. We hold God himself near to us. Let me do two quick applications and then we'll turn our time. The first is, and I don't have to go too, too deep into this, okay? Y'all can get this pretty quickly. This is why the Bible is very particular about not misusing the name of God. It matters. Now, I understand. I live in 2017 America. No one, it seems, especially in the movies and TV, cares about the name of God at all. 
I mean, it, it is, Jesus Christ is thrown around incredibly flippantly. But there is, if we learn to hallow the name of God, you will also have a difficult time, a more difficult time with some of this. In fact, I remember a professor I had when I was in college who loved the Lord. And he would, he would cry every time someone would misuse the name of the Lord. I was like, Lord, give me a heart like that. Give me a heart like that. I treat it flippantly too. We all, in some, some ways, maybe not through our cursing, but we misuse the name of God. The Bible's very clear. Honor. Hallow the name of God. Second, second quick application. St. Augustine said this, and he said it really well. He's this guy that lived thousands, like 1,500 years ago-ish, 1,200 years ago. He said it really well. He said, our souls cannot find rest until they find rest in you, Lord. There is this sense in which whatever you hallow besides God, besides the name of God, I promise you it will let you down. It will eventually crush you. If you hallow money, you can be robbed, a financial crisis can hit, you can lose your job. Not so if God himself is your treasure. I cannot be robbed. Cars break down, they rust, they get stolen. The Lord cannot be stolen from us. If I hallow my kids, they will rebel, they will let me down, they will hurt me, they will lie to me. Unlike the God of the universe, Jehovah Nisi. If I hallow my looks, you can, I don't need to go down the whole list. If I hallow my looks, what will happen eventually? You get old. Yeah. <laughs> yep. That's right. You get zipped. You know what I mean? <laughs> but old is probably a bigger deal. The point <laughs> is that y'all, the point is that y'all really, God, God has wired us this way. That's what St. Augustine's doing. You are wired, hardwired, to, to hallow as your ultimate thing the name of God. You can try to find deep happiness and satisfaction in other things, and you will, and I have. But it will fail. It will. The Bible promises and experience teaches that it will fail. Know, know that the name of God how in the name of God will bring true happiness. It does. Okay. Second quick point. This one's a lot shorter. Your kingdom come. So that's hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come. This is an extension of the same idea we just covered with hallowing his name. This, your kingdom come basically means, Lord, spread the hallowing of your name throughout the earth. That's what it means. Spread this hallowing. This beautiful happiness, this beautiful hardwired creation uh, bent for us, spread it throughout the world. So certainly, your kingdom come, we are praying for the conversion of people, for hearts to be changed, for people to be turned from howling something besides God to howling God as their king and their ultimate. That's a big part of that prayer. But secondly, it, means, it also means, your kingdom come also means, Lord, Make your kingdom more present in my own heart if I'm a believer. So it's praying for the conversion of those who don't believe in Christ, but it's also it's also a prayer for, for anyone who has placed their faith in Christ. Make it deeper. Make it more real. May your kingdom work its way further into my life. Smash these other things that I hallow. 
those bridges, those walls we build between ourselves and God. Smash those, Lord. May your kingdom come more fully into our hearts. And then also, certainly, your kingdom come means we pray for Jesus to come. We pray for Jesus to come. Now, of course, all of those things are going to have massive implications for humanity in small groups, in large groups, and as a society. But it starts there. Jesus taught that. We went to the Beatitudes. Jesus taught that it starts in the heart and it works its way out from there. Okay, so that's your kingdom come. I know that was a 30,000 foot overview. But let's we're going to close out with this. Your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. This is Jesus saying, pray for the beauty of all things and people to obey God. Pray for the beauty of that. To circle back to hallowed be your name, whatever you have distinguished, whatever you have set apart in your life, whatever you protect, and trust me, you can find out what you protect by just asking your, one of your best friends to start poking you. Not like physically poking you. But you can find out what you protect if you attack someone else when they touch it, when they see it. When they go, do you think you're maybe spending a little too much time X, Y, Z at work with that person? Do you think maybe you're spending a little too much time with the bottle? Do you think maybe you're spending... If, if you attack someone who brings that up to you, you know you're protecting it. <laughs> and you know it is owning it. You know it's owning it. Because that's the point, right? What we hallow, what we truly hallow, if we give it its power, it owns us. We follow its will. Think about it for a minute. Think about the, the end point of that. If it's money, if you really truly in your heart hallow money above all else, you will guarantee steal and cheat. You will. Because you have to have more. It will never stop. It has to, there has to be more. You will give to it. You will serve it. If it's your kids, you will crush them. If I hallow my kids as the ultimate thing in my life, I will end up ultimately crushing them. Because they can't have that weight. They will disappoint me. I will begin to get angry. I will fight. It will get ugly. It, they cannot be the ultimate thing that I hallow. And then lastly, if it's yourself, which we all are in danger of, I'm constantly in danger of this, of hallowing myself. And one of my favorite sort of uh, pictures of this is a uh, uh, this guy named Brian Regan. He's a comedian. You ever heard Brian Regan? Hilarious. Look him up. But Brian Regan has this thing called the Me Monster. And he, he is talking about how in a conversation it's all about me, 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 me. That's what the new monster does when you walk up. And it's a danger for any of us, for all of us, for me, um, that we would begin to hallow ourselves as ultimate and thus resist strongly the will of God. What is the will of God? What are you resisting when you resist the will of God? That's a big question to me. And I only have a couple more minutes, but we're going to fly through it real fast. Hang on to your hats. There's three parts to God's will, sort of three facets. It's like a, a, a diamond. Let's think of a diamond. You're looking at it from three different angles. 
there's his comprehensive will. God's comprehensive will means all molecules in the entire universe are under control. Everything, every atom. There's nothing that God's sovereignty does not cover. He is completely sovereign over all. But there's another facet to his will called his compassionate will. And this is what you read about in the New Testament when Jesus says, I cry, I pray for Jerusalem. Oh, Jerusalem, come to me. God's compassionate will is this. He wants everyone to find the heart pleasure of worshiping him, of not being a slave to idolatry, a slave to sin. He wants that. But it doesn't happen for everyone, does it? Right? It doesn't ha- we know. It doesn't happen to everyone. So his compassionate will is what leaves room for people to actually rebel against him. His compassionate will. And then lastly, there's his commanding will. God's commanding will is the things that we find all through Scripture. His commanding will is only for those that he that have believed on Jesus Christ, because that's the only way someone can have power to follow his commanding will. His commanding will is one of the most the sort of seminal verses that talks about his commanding will is in Romans chapter twelve. You may have heard it before. Romans chapter twelve, one and two. It says, "It says, therefore, therefore, make your body." A living sacrifice to God. For that is your spiritual act of worship. It's saying lay it all. Lay everything, your life, before God. Put it in his hands. Put your life in his hands. That that is the following of his will that he's asking for. I end with a story. It's a really cool picture. it's It's by this author named Philip Keller who went to Pakistan. And I'm simply going to read it for you because it it hit me in that spot this week that I needed to be hit when it comes to following God's will. He was in Pakistan. He read the verse of Jeremiah 18, chapter 2. I mean, chapter 18, verse 2, which says, Arise and go down to the potter's house, and there I shall announce my words to you. So he and a missionary went to a potter's house in that city in Pakistan. And in, in, in his book, A Layman Looks at the Lord's Prayer, he describes what happened. In sincerity and earnestness, I asked the old master craftsman to show me every step in the creation of a masterpiece. On his shelves were gleaming goblets, lovely vases, and exquisite bowls of breathtaking beauty. Then, crooking a bony finger toward me, he led the way to a small, dark, closed shed at the back of his shop. When he opened the rickety door... A repulsive, overpowering stench of decaying matter engulfed me. For a moment, I stepped back from the edge of the gaping dark pit in the floor of the shed. This is where the work begins, he said, kneeling down beside the black, nauseating hole. With his long, thin arm, he reached down into the darkness. His slim, skilled fingers felt around amid the lumpy clay, searching for a fragment of material exactly suited to his task. I add special kinds of grass to the mud, he remarked. As it rots and decays, its organic content increases the colloidal quality of the clay. Then it sticks together better. Finally, his knowing hands brought up a lump of dark mud from the horrible pit where the clay had been tramped and mixed for hours by his hard, bony feet. With tremendous impact, the first verses from Psalm 40 came to my heart. In a new and suddenly illuminating way, I saw what the psalmist meant when he wrote long ago. I waited patiently for the Lord, and he inclined unto me and heard my cry. He brought me up out of a horrible pit, out of the miry clay. As carefully as the potter selected his clay, 
so God used special care in choosing me. The great slab of granite carved from the rough rock of the high Kush mountains behind his home whirled quietly. It was operated by a very crude treetle-like device that was moved by his feet, very much like our antique sewing machines. As the stone gathered momentum, I was taken in memory to Jeremiah 18.3. Then I went down to the potter's house, and behold, he wrought a work on the wheels. But what stood out most before my mind at this point was the fact that beside the potter's stool, on either side of him, stood two basins of water. Not once did he touch the clay, now spinning swiftly at the center of the wheel, without first dipping his hands in the water. As he began to apply his delicate fingers and smooth palms to the mound of mud, it was always through the medium of the moisture of his hands. And it was fascinating to see how swiftly but surely the clay responded to the pressure applied to it through those moistened hands. Silently, smoothly, the form of a graceful goblet began to take shape beneath those hands. The water was the medium through which the master's craftsman's will and wishes were being transmitted to the clay. His will actually was being done on earth. For me, this was a most moving demonstration of the simple yet mysterious truth that my Father's will and wishes are expressed and transmitted to me through the water of his word. Suddenly, as I watched my utter astonishment, I saw the stone stop. Why? I looked closely. The potter removed a small particle of grit from the goblet. Then, just as suddenly, the stone stopped again. He removed another hard object. Suddenly, the stone stopped again. He pointed disconsolately to a deep, rugged gouge that cut and scarred the goblet's side. It was ruined beyond repair. In dismay, he crushed it again under his hands. And the vessel that he made of clay was marred in the hand of the potter, Jeremiah 18.4. Seldom had any lesson come home to me with such tremendous clarity and force. Why was this rare and beautiful masterpiece ruined in the master's hands? Because he had run into existence. It was like a thunderclap of truth bursting about me. Why is my father's will, his intention to turn out truly beautiful people, brought to naught again and again? Why, despite his best efforts and endless patience with human beings, do they end up a disaster? Simply because they resist his will. The sobering, searching, searing question I had to ask myself in the humble surroundings of that simple potter shed was this. Am I going to be a fine piece of china or just a fingerboard? Is my life going to be a gorgeous goblet fit to hold the fine wine of God's very life from which others can drink and be refreshed? Or am I going to be just a crude fingerboard in which passers-by will dabble their fingers briefly then pass on but forget about it? It was one of the most solemn moments in all my spiritual experiences. Father, thy will be done in earth, in clay, in me, as it is in heaven. The reason that story hit me powerfully this morning is because I was like, Lord, where and how am I not surrendering to you? Where am I resisting you? It's a powerful question, and I hope each of us this morning will ask it. Where are we resisting? But I don't want to leave us there. I don't want to leave us despairing. Lord, I know I'm resisting your will in a certain way. I know you've asked me to give this up. I know you've asked me to do this, to not do this, to see that, to not you know what I mean? But we have to end with Christ. We must. We must end with the meal. Because our understanding is that Jesus Christ was the one who was crushed by the potter. Crushed for us. Here was one, Jesus Christ that is, 
Here was one who perfectly followed and obeyed the will of the Father. Perfect. And he was crushed for our sin, for our resistance. But the beauty is, <coughs> he wasn't left there. He was also raised from the dead in the same way we also receive resurrection. We receive grace. We now know the record of Jesus perfectly following the will of God, the Father, is given to us. And it's pictured in this meal. As we eat the bread and drink the wine, we are united once again with Christ. We are reminded of this union, this sweet union that brings us the smile of the Father and that brings us hope and grace. So my prayer is that this morning you would see the love of the Father, the love of the Father in this meal. Matthew chapter 26. While they were eating, Jesus took bread, gave thanks, and he broke it. Are you going to go inside? They're going to grab the other kid. And he broke it and he said, This is my body, which is for you. Take eat. <coughs> then he took the cup, gave thanks, and offered it to them, saying, Drink from it, all of you. This is my blood of the covenant, which is poured out for many for the forgiveness of sins. I'm going to take these two pieces of bread and pass them around now. 